Welcome to episode 87 of the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Mike Savage. Mike was considered a criminal mastermind by federal authorities. After a five-year investigation, he was sent to prison where he served 15 years, two months, and 28 days. Today, you will hear Mike talk about the sacrificial love of his wife, Cynthia. You will also hear how God used his prison time to wreck and save his life. This conversation is a profound example of how God is still at work in the world and in human hearts today. You can find the book titles Mike mentions, a link to Prisoner's Perspective, and quotes from our time together at graceenoughpodcast.com backslash show notes. Now, on to episode 87 with Mike Savage, From Prison to Praise. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for being on the Grace Enough podcast. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Go ahead, introduce yourself and your family and tell all of our listeners what you're doing currently. Well, my name is Mike Savage. I'm a adjunct professor. I teach uh, psychology. I teach theology. I teach sociology, biblical <laughs> studies, systematic theology. I've, I have uh, two doctorates. One's in uh, psychology. The other is in theology. So I'm kind of a, a crossover guy, you know, so I can teach general education courses like psychology and in a Christian environment presented from a Christian perspective. So that's what I do right now. I'm married. My wife, Cynthia, is the director for three hospitals in Corpus Christi. She's the head of uh, case management, if anyone knows what that is. It seems to kind of be a little obscure to some folks, but she's, uh, she's in charge of that, has a bunch of people that work for her. We live in Corpus Christi on North Padre Island. Uh, we have three children, uh, two sons and a daughter, and five grandchildren, all of them grandsons. Wow. Uh, they live in California and are currently learning what poor air quality is all about oh. and being ready to leave if, if fires show up, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. But they're all grown adults, married, doing well. Here on Padre Island, I have two dogs that I am primary caregiver for. Uh, they are my other significant others rather than just my wife, <laughs> uh, Cosmo and Addison. So you may hear them at some point during the podcast. Uh, they like to make their presence known. So let's see, I've, I've written a book, my memoir. I'm in the process of editing a book uh, that, it, that I wrote. It's, it's fiction. Nice. And I refer to it as kind of Christian because you never know these days who you might or might not offend, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's pretty much been my life for the last uh, 10 years. So there you are. Yeah, let's jump in to what we're going to talk about today and kind of set the stage with you sharing your story, just a little bit about your childhood and kind of work your way up through your first few jobs. I was uh, born in Florida and grew up in uh, central Florida in Orlando. Uh, my dad worked for the space program at uh, Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy at the time. Uh, my mom was uh, pretty much a stay-at-home mom. She had a, a series of, of illnesses that um, the doctors could never quite put their finger on, but managed to to give her medications nonetheless. That you know, today we realize are addictive, but it was it was a uh, it was the '60s, and so you know, it was, it was throw a pill at it. And so she had some issues with that. Uh, when the space program ended in 1969, uh, my dad found a job in, in Colorado working for Coors Brewery. What and a so change. We moved, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, from space program to uh, 
being uh, whatever he was doing there at Coors at that particular time. I played a lot of football in, in Florida and tried to carry that on into Colorado, um, but discovered early on that I had uh, great enthusiasm but little talent. You know, just being a big guy wasn't the the solution to everything. Still kept me trying and ended up with a couple of back surgeries and things from from my lack of talent, but not for lack of trying. Uh, went to a high school in Lakewood, Colorado, graduated. And um, my first job was at a, a place called LaBelle's, which was a, a kind of like a precursor to a Costco, I guess. You know, but it had a lot of electronics, so I was, I was selling electronics. Went to the University of Denver for a while and decided college wasn't for me, so I got into broadcasting. And uh, You have a great a, broadcasting voice. Like, you oh, really well, do. Thanks. Thanks. You know, and a face for radio is what they told me after my first television job. It was an upstairs. I started out in North Platte, Nebraska as a, as a news director. And uh, I was offered a job in Goodland, Kansas at the world's smallest CBS TV affiliate. Now, who couldn't resist doing that? So I, I went down there as news director and was there uh, for a few years. I'd married my high school sweetheart. Okay. And uh, that was a wreck. That was a disaster um, that did not, it didn't end well, mm. uh, but it ended. And, and uh, this was all pre-salvation, pre any of this at all. I mean, we, we, you know, my parents took me to, to a Baptist church in, in uh, Orlando when I was a kid. I never really got it, you know, into the right. camps and did all the stuff. But it's kind of like, you know, I want to play football and I really don't. I'm not trying to hear about Jesus when I'm, you know, 10, 11 years old. I was, I wasn't, it just didn't click. It wasn't there. Yeah. So anyways, when we got to Colorado, I uh, didn't do much with church either. And so going out into the world, I didn't do anything with church or anything, you know, I just, okay, whatever. And so I got uh, a job in, in, uh, in Goodland, Kansas, as a news anchor and ended up after about three years thinking, I don't like Kansas. I really don't, don't like uh, TV that much and constantly being told what to wear. Um, yeah, I was one of the guys that they would tell me what to wear, the suit, the tie, yeah. but I'd only wear the top half of the suit. You know, I had shorts on underneath because it was hot under the lights, right? And I'm wearing shorts and tennis shoes. Finally got a job in, in uh, Napa, California. Nice. And, and moved to California. That's where Cynthia and I got married in, in 1989. I've lasted doing different jobs. You know, I would fill in for people in San Francisco on occasion, do things like that. But I'm not the Mike Savage that everybody talks about. Right? I'd never even heard of him, to be honest with you, until, until right. here we go, audience, until I went to prison. Now, how did that happen, you ask? Well, <laughs> interesting story there. That's right. That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, that's, that's what we want to talk about, I would imagine. But let me just explain to you that while I was in radio, you don't make a lot of money in radio back in the yeah. 80s. So this, this guest that I had suggested there were other ways to supplement my income. And I'm going to be deliberately vague here because I don't want to give anybody any ideas. You know, I don't want to glorify my sin and I don't want to give anybody else any ideas. Suffice it to say that it involved money laundering. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few years later, five years later, I was indicted on a 101 count federal indictment, 101 counts. Uh, and my wife, my life <laughs> came crashing to a halt. Um, I, I had left radio, I'd gotten full-time into doing that, uh, hid it all from my family very successfully, and, and, and we can talk about that, but I hid it from them. And so it was a shock to everyone mm -hmm. when the federal agents from the FBI, Organized Crime Task Force, uh, Internal Revenue Service, uh, Post Office, all that kind of stuff came rushing into the house one morning with a search warrant, 
uh, took my wife, Cynthia, who was, uh, I think, six months pregnant with our youngest child at the time away uh, and told me that uh, she wouldn't be coming back until they interviewed me. Wow. Now, what they'd actually done is they'd taken her to breakfast, you know, one of the female officers, but I, I had no idea what was going on. But still, so, it's terrifying yeah, it was, for her. She surely, you had a lot more, you knew a lot more about what was going on than she did. I knew everything that was going on and she knew nothing. And so this is, this is, we'd only been married a couple of years when that happened. And so uh, over the, and it's an immediate fall from grace. When you live in a small town mm-hmm. and people know you, Napa was at that time, small town, um, the paper headlines, they had known this was going to happen. The, the government tipped them off. So that afternoon in the newspaper, all this stuff comes out. Um, it was just horrific. Yeah. And so at this point, you're how old and you have other children at home, correct? Yeah. I was 26 when all this came down. And um, over the, once it came down, you, you think an indictment, okay, all of a sudden you're going to, you know, you're off to jail. That's it. Well, they were investigating me for years before they actually did this. All right. And they group you know, all these other people that were involved with me. They gathered them up and, and they were, were all going to be tried together. But that took a couple of years for that to play out before this, this indictment comes down. I'm actually arrested the night before our youngest son was going to be christened. Oh, wow. They came to the house, all the families there, all that kind of stuff, and took me away the night before. No idea that was going to happen. No idea whatsoever. Did you know you were being investigated? Sure, sure. That's that when they raided the house two years before, I knew I was under investigation. But that was the first time I knew. Okay, so they came in and raided two years before, but then did not come and arrest you officially until the night before your youngest son, who your wife was pregnant with, when they they, when they took right when they when they actually questioned you for the first time. That's correct. And that questioning didn't go well. You know, I kept asking where my wife was. They weren't going to answer me. And so at at that point, I was confronted with, okay, fess up, admit it, or be a tough guy and fight it. And I made the poor decision of deciding to be the tough guy and fight it. So I fought it for two years. I mean, I went to trial. I didn't, there was no pleading out. There was none of that. and, And while all this is happening, some people begin to sue us different kind of court where, you know, the civil court, you don't have to, there's not the preponderance of the evidence. I mean, so we're getting sued. All our assets are frozen. Um, All this stuff is happening over this two year period. And you're fighting a two front war. I actually was praying, even though I hadn't been saved, I'm still praying. I'm saying, God, please get me out of this. Please get me out of this. And he did. He did get me out of it. Mm. I went to prison. I was found guilty. Uh, I think it was a day before my, my 30th birthday. I was, I was or 29th birthday and, and, but no, I was, I was 33 when, when that happened. I'm, I'm trying to place all these numbers now cause I've never really thought about that. Yeah. But I was, it was before my birthday and, and then the trial had gone on for about three months. Okay. Just sitting there day after day being harassed, not harassed, but I mean, people telling the truth. I mean, just, I was feeling just, just totally despondent. I was numb. And my attorney, who was a public defender, because all our assets were gone, uh, put on a three-day defense. Wow. And I have these co-defendants who are blaming me. And 
the, the defense attorney asked me, he says, Hey, Mike, do you want to testify? I said, yeah, I'll testify. So I go up and testify. And the reason I did that is I thought that if the jury heard my side of things, it would make a difference. And make so, a difference for what though? Because you knew at this point, like I'm guilty, but you thought like maybe you might change their mind. I might change their mind. That was my motivation. It was not this, even though it came across, I cleared my co-defendants. I told, I said, no, this was me. I did those things. Yes. But here's why I did those things. Thinking, come clean on the stand, you know, co-defendants are acquitted. I'm yeah. ultimately convicted on 89 of 90 counts. They had dropped some of the counts before trial. I'm convicted on 89 of 90 counts. I'm still trying to figuring out how I got off that one count. <laughs> I did that too, but I'm convicted on 89 of 90 counts, ultimately sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison, which in wow. federal prison, you do 85% of your time, mm -hmm. not 50%. There's no anything, nothing. You, you do 85%. You can only do more time. You can't do less because it was what they called the new law at that time. There's no parole board. There was none of that. And so that's, that's, I did 15 years, two months and 28 days in federal prison. Okay. So I have to ask you, and I know listeners mm. want to know, Cynthia, your wife stayed with you despite having absolutely no idea. So go back and tell me a little bit about what your family life was like while you were living this criminal lifestyle and she was clueless. And then what was it like those two years where you weren't in prison, but you were being investigated? Like, how was family life then once she knew? You know, she tried to make it as normal as possible. Really? Um, yeah, she tried to, to just, you know, she was worried to death about me, worried about, you know, what was going to happen to me. Um, did you tell her? Did you come clean and say, I did it? No. Okay. No, I didn't do that. Look, I wasn't a stand-up guy. Yeah, I want to make that clear. I, I did it. I was not a stand-up guy. Um, I, was a, I was a liar, and I mm -hmm. was a, a criminal. And I, I admit that. Yeah. I don't want anybody to say, well, he doesn't sound like he's, you know, taking responsibility. I take full responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, so no, I never, I never, not one time did I ever come clean or anything like that. She was the model mom and wife. Mm -hmm during those two years. And, and that's hard for some people to believe. And I, you know, I get that. It, I tried to divorce her three times when I was in prison, Wow, three times. Um, and I mean, the last time was by phone, you know, say, look, you're not, I'm not getting out of here for till 2008. There's no way you're going to stay with me. And this is, you know, 1995, 96. Mm. And, uh, I said, you're just not going to, there's no way. And, and she said, and I'll never forget this. She said, if you ever say that to me again, I will yank you through the phone and you will get five years for escape. <laughs> well, well, they record phone calls in prison. Okay. Oh, and no. they look for certain words, right? And the word escape popped up on their, their list. And I got called into the Lieutenant's office and he'd listened to it. And he said, listen to me very carefully. And I'm not going to say the exact words because this is a Christian podcast that were used with me, if you understand what I'm saying. But he said to the effect that I was um, ignorant of what real love is all about, um, that I was an idiot for, for acting the way I was acting with her, and that a, a couple of days in the hole would be good for me right now. And, and wow. so 
Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in the hole, but the problem was it was after I became a Christian. It was, before, oh, it, was <laughs> it was, it was free reign. But, but once I became Christian, then all of a sudden, you know, I started getting locked up for investigating stuff like that. But Cynthia was made everything normal as she possibly could. Um, but constantly, you know, there's that, that, that gorilla in the room of, you know, anything could happen, you know, yeah. jumping every time the doorbell would ring or there'd be a knock on the door or that sort of thing. But she was, she, this is a remarkable woman, just a I mean, remarkable obviously. woman. That, and at this point, she wasn't a believer either. She'd been raised Catholic. Okay. All right. She'd been raised uh, Roman Catholic. So um, I imagine she was, she was doing her, you know, rosaries and I'm sure that she was doing her prayers and that sort of thing, going to mass, doing all that. But I, I mean, uh, let's leave that theology aside for just yep, a second. Absolutely. Let's discuss it a little bit later, if that's right, because that's an important point. It is a very important point to me yeah. uh, that we talk about that theology if we can. Uh, but just kind of getting through the the deal, I, I, I was initially sent to uh, the penitentiary in Lampo, California. They discovered later that that was a misclassification. I should have gone to the FCI, a lower level, because it was you know, it was supposedly white collar, you know, there was all this kind right. of stuff, right? It was there guns and drugs and, you know, but just, so I got misdesignated and eventually got moved over to the FCI where I was, I was there for uh, a little over six years before I was transferred to Taft, California. And they put me in a, in a, <laughs> they put me in a camp. All right. They put me in a camp like and it, the camp was a, a, prison for profit. You know, the ones that, I don't know if you've heard of those or not work. They're run by private companies. Oh yes. Yes. And they had just gotten the contract, had no clue what was going on. And the inmates were running the place when I showed up and uh, it was, so that's, that's where I ended up doing the rest of my time, eventually released to a halfway house in Oakland, California in September of 2007, which was the worst place I'd ever been in my life, including the County jails where I'd been held and all these, really? that was horrible. Oh, it had all kinds of mixtures of classifications. And, you know, it was, it was, again, it was the wild west at a, at a halfway house. And so eventually I was put on home detention with a la ankle monitor and worked my way off that in, in March of uh, 2008. And so that was technically the end of, of my sentence and then began five years of supervised release after which I did two years. They let me off that. And so as we begin to get into a little bit of your, just how you came to know Jesus. Another question I have is this time you're 15 years in prison. Was your wife coming and visiting frequently and bringing the kids or, you know, how did that work? Okay. First of all, I know there's somebody wondering about this and I'm going to, I'm going to just answer it. There are no conjugal visits in, in federal prison. Yeah. Okay, just, just, just to know, anybody contemplating a crime, don't do a federal crime because there's no conjugal visits or anything like that. So, yeah, so you're, at any rate, she would visit me in Lompoc every other weekend and bring the kids. And that's a six-hour drive, six-and-a-half-hour drive each way from where she was living. So every other weekend. I mean, weekend she, she has young kids. Well, uh, eight, nine, we have children from previous marriage. So eight and nine, and then Jesse, the youngest, was, you know, growing up. Yeah. Young, you know, toddler, you know, dad's in prison. Right. Okay, we'll go visit dad. The others, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, type of thing. So they, you know, but the, it was six hours. To Taft, it was four hours. But okay. she would drive every other weekend, come down, stay, visit me on Saturday afternoon, 
Sunday and then drive back and go to work on Monday. Wow. Yeah. It's really incredible. I mean, it really is. She, she has a very, I just am assuming an incredible testimony. Um, but you, you wouldn't know it from her demeanor. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, how can I describe? I am the, I know that you may find this hard to believe, but I'm kind of the wild free spirit. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I like to try new things. Let's do new things. Uh, you know, new foods. I, I like when I'm cooking, I cook all this. And, and Cynthia is a, uh, she's a nurse, you know, she's a, she's a, a by the book person at work. Um, and she fell in love and mm-hmm. I, obviously you can see me. It wasn't because of my stunning looks, you know, she, she fell in love with me because God made that happen and she never let loose. Not one time, never like, okay, I'm going to think about this or I'm going to, and, and it drove me insane when I was in prison. I, I knew I was being lied to. This couldn't be the case. This is impossible. This is, how is this? She's beautiful. She all, and I just am stunned, you know, and, and I don't believe it. And, and I don't believe it until she goes through cancer mm. two years before I get out. Wow. And that's, pardon me? What, ch- I mean, what changed then that you really realize like she's enduring this and still sticking with me? she told me that every time I thought that she was going to be unfaithful or leave me, that it hurt her. Mm. And that broke my heart. Mm. And if she'd said it years before, I don't know how I would have reacted. But as soon as I knew that I was hurting her by saying those words, it's like God said, okay, you get it. You get it. Mm. You get it. So, I mean, that was the, I mean, she went through some horrible things. I mean, after I got saved, I thought, Oh, this is, this is it. Okay. Things are going to be good. You know, they immediately told me I was called to be a pastor. So I'm thinking, cool pastor. I have no idea what that is, but all right, then I have a goal start seminary and all this. Uh, One of the chaplains told me that. And he said, you know, because the way I was with other inmates, so I would counsel and I would do these things and I could preach and teach and all that. Okay. All right. So I'm going to do this. I start seminary while I'm in there. Well, Cynthia's paying for it. Right. Mm. And, um, there's a point in time where my parents got sick, both of them. And she, you know, we talked about it. She and Jesse moved in. First weekend that I call her on the phone, she says, your parents are crazy. And I said, well, yeah. And I'm looking at me. What do you, what do you expect? They buy groceries before they pay bills. Did you realize that? Uh, buy groceries and then they pay bills. And if the bills are late, the bills are late. And that was abhorrent to her. And, and, and I asked her, I said, because the Holy Spirit at that point kind of hammering me, getting me, yeah. and follow up on this, follow up. I said, well, it's not like you've ever gone without food. I mean, you're paying for seminary. You send me money to put on the, the phone at work and all that, or phone at the prison, and I can call you and all that. And uh, there's this, this a silence. Mm-hmm. And my heart is falling at this point into my stomach. I said, have you? And she explained that there were times when there wasn't enough money for the children to eat and for her to eat and to send me the $20 a week that she used to send me and then pay for the seminary. So she went without food at times to, to do this. Right. Wow. And, um, I'm tearing up here. I do it every time. Well, because it's a true picture of Jesus. I went, I, I flew off the handle, um, at the chaplain and I used, I used prison language when I did it as his chapel clerk, I go off. I said, why in the world would God do that to my wife? 
Why? I'm the one that did wrong. Punish me more. I'm already here. Punish me more. I don't care. But to do that, and the chaplain said just what you said, that's a perfect example of what Jesus did, isn't it? And I understood more about the gospel at that point. Yeah, the grace of God is just truly indescribable. Oh, I, it, it was, and he, he wasn't even mad that I was, I was angry with him. You know, it was one of those like, you're going to grow. You're a kid. Yeah, that's So right. that's, that, that was one of the, the pivotal moments in, in my walk with the Lord that I suddenly realized that, you know, this is a lot deeper than preaching, teaching. So essentially what it came down to was that Cynthia was, was, was God's way of showing me, this is how much I love you. you. You're having trouble comprehending anything past teaching and preaching and, and what are you going to do when you get out? All that, here, let me show you what this is all about. And once it settled in, it changed the way I studied, it changed the way I approached seminary. It changed the way I lived and in prison because it wasn't uh, just a job. It wasn't just something, okay, in seven or eight years when I get out, I'm going to, none of that. It became one of those things where, where I actually had to think mm-hmm. about relationship. And I began studying differently than I did before. And I started reading books that I never would have read before. You know, um, the practice of his presence by Brother Lawrence being number one on my list. That's the way I pray today. Um, I was walking the track, talking to him out loud. My neighbors can tell you there's times they think I'm talking to them. What would you say, Mike? Oh, never mind. I'm sorry. They think old man talking to himself. I'm talking to God and I'm listening. And so when I'm teaching about prayer, I, I say to my students, I want you to take one minute, close your eyes and think of nothing but God. And so they close their eyes for one minute. After one minute, I'll say, okay, how many of you actually were able to do that? And anybody who raises their hand, I say, liar, liar, mm-hmm. liar. It's impossible to do unless you discipline yourself to be able to do that. And the, the best part of Brother Lawrence's book to me was not just the conversation with God, because that's how I pray now. I never say amen unless it's food, because I don't want the food to get cold. Um, but the, the thing is, I never say amen. I'm not going to hang the phone up on him. And I got reported to an academic dean for telling him to not say amen at the end of their prayers. And I went in and explained to him, he goes, oh, that's great. Where'd you learn that? <laughs> so I told him, but I mean, that's, that was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and it's not like a, a dad, you know, or, but I've done that Yeah. and be praying and all of a sudden go, dude, that is incredible. You know, I called God, dude. Oh no. Um, so <laughs> it's, so it true. was pretty remarkable beginning of a change that's mm. been maintained you know, even through 2020, you know, right. the hurricane Harvey, when we were here, hurricane Hannah this year, um, all the, it's like, ooh, we left our house the first time, whatever's left is left. That's fine. And the only thing that I took, Cynthia had everything, you know, we're ready. Okay. Let's go. I, I ran back in and picked up our wedding album and I, cause I wanted to make sure that that didn't go anywhere. And I thought, I think she was going to cry. I said, you got to drive the other car. Don't start crying. Let's, let's go. So that was the, that was the way you know, some of the changes that were made there. And um, I think that for me, once I understood that kind of relationship, rather than having to beg God for stuff, you know, what kind of father makes a child beg for things? Mm. What is that? Begging? And the other thing about prayer is, is if, if I don't feel like praising him that day, if I'm having a bad day, I go and tell him that. I said, no, I just, I, know. Oh, I just can't right now. And, and he's never condemned me. And like Brother Lawrence, when I forget about him doing something, 
he does call you back. You know, he's not like, you know, oh, holy father, I forgot. Oh, no, no, dad, come back here. You know, we pick up where we left off. I mean, Brother Lawrence taught me so, and I never would have gotten to that point. The other one was uh, Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. All right. I All haven't, right. I mean, I haven't read that one. <laughs> uh, changed my whole idea about leadership. And that'll break your heart when you do. That, that was, that was, I thought, you know, strong leaders, pastors, I'm going to preach out, I'm going to do this. And there's people that do that and they do it successfully. That's great. But there's some of us that just aren't that way. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to bring my criminal mindset into ministry. I mean, I'd be kind of messed up. But instead, I learned humility. I learned about David. And then the other one was Prisoner in the Third Cell by Gene Edwards, which is about uh, what happens when God doesn't live up to your expectations. Mm. And it's about John the Baptist. And each of those are like an hour read. I mean, I mean, come on. So I go through those two, three times a year just to brush up and remind myself about some of these things. So, it's I mean, crucial it's, to have some books like that, though, in my opinion. I feel that way a lot about screw tape letters. Like, yeah. I could seriously read that one every few months just for the reminder that this spiritual warfare going on around us, it is real. And, you know, there are just some, those little books like that are just so great because they can really help refocus your mind on truth and just the tenderness of God and his presence. So good. I'm editing my novel right now. I wrote a novel and uh, the, the talk is it's not probably Christian enough to say this is a Christian novel. It's really not, but it's basic down to earth type of, of relationship with God that this, this kid develops over time. And um, it's, it's one of those things that I can see me in it. You know, I can see yeah. it. I, yeah. I was 13. It was about this 13 year old kid. I get it now. I probably wouldn't have gone to prison, but I wouldn't have known the, the love of God. And I wouldn't mm. have known how much my wife loved me had I not gone. Wow. Well, and, and I want people to know, and I want to know, what led you to Jesus? What was that process in prison like? What were the experiences that finally broke your heart to say, I need you? Um, I was working as a chapel's clerk. I was a lead clerk in the chapel. Um, unsaved. I got transferred from the kitchen where I was making uh, illegal alcohol to, to sell it on the prison. I get transferred from there to the chapel of all places. Right. Um, and I asked the chaplain, what's the deal? He says, how many years in is this real quick? If you remember two years, two okay. years. Okay. And uh, so I get transferred to the chapel. I said, what is this? How am I going to make money here? You know, and, and because it's the most scrutinized place in the, in the, in the prison because volunteers come in. Well, there's 13 religious groups that were served, were using the chapel at that time, the chapel area, from the Muslim groups, uh, Jewish groups, uh, Wiccans, uh, all the all the different religious groups. So I'm I'm learning about those, and I'm kind of examining each one, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at the Muslim stuff. I'm like, that's not quite for me. I'm, I looked at Wiccan, and I said, Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 uh, Native American stuff. I mean, I'm looking at Catholic. Mm-hmm. Said, I'm a Catholic. And so I'm looking at all, but it was in, it, the mass was in Spanish. My Spanish, the words that I know in Spanish, hardly ever said in mass. All right. So <laughs> that was the, the stuff that I'd learned. So I, I'm, I'm just kind of pondering and all of a sudden I'm miserable because I, I'm not going to get out until 2008. I'm all this stuff. I'm a server at chapel and I'm, I, I'm the last guy to leave every night because I make sure everything's clean and order, all that kind of stuff. And we're always having visitors come in or, you know, I see visitors or volunteers coming in to preach and say how great God is and occasionally have somebody that had been in prison for like, you know, two or three years come and say, Oh, I, 
it turned my life around and I was going to do a double life sentence, but God, and I'm thinking double life. I didn't kill anybody. Why don't you let me out? So I'm thinking all these things, right? And I'm down. I'm sure Cynthia's going to leave me. Um, I'm just, you know, just at the very bottom of depression. Okay. Wow. And, I, and I'm Irish. I know how to get depressed. Okay. It's in our DNA. I know how to be depressed. <laughs> and, but I was down. I mean, not suicidal down, but I mean down. I mean, what am I going to do? And this, they always come in and say, okay, repeat this prayer. This is a sinner's prayer. And if you believe these things and you're saved, and I'm mocking them, yeah, yeah, every time, because it's always the same guys that were coming up to get saved again, you know, because they were new volunteers, you know, and it was just over and over this repetitive stuff. And I was sitting in the back of the chapel listening to this guy, and he was from Calvary Chapel, very back. And I put my head down just as I, they're going to launch into the sinner's prayer thing, right? I put my head down and I said, look, I have nowhere to go until 2008. I have absolutely nothing left of any money. I have nothing criminal. So I'm going to say this sinner's prayer. All right. I'm going to say it and I'm, I'm going to mean it to the very best of my ability, but you need to show me something. Okay. Dumb thing to say to God, show me something. All right. Show me something. But I did. I'm praying. I go through the thing. I'm sorry. All my sins. I repent. I believe Jesus Christ died. All the stuff. And when he said, amen, I started crying. Mm. And I had not planned to start crying. I had, I planned to go find some Pruno, which is the alcohol stuff that I would and drink and mm. either go to the hole or fall asleep blissfully numb. Mm -hmm. But I started crying and everything that I'd heard about God, everything that I had to sit through, through all these things about God, you know, not believing suddenly made sense. It suddenly out of the blue, sovereign will of God, whatever you want to call it, that synapse in my brain fired. And I started crying. I mean, weeping. And I'm in prison. I'm not trying like I see me. No, come on forward. Come on forward. No, I'm not. I'm not going forward. I'm going to sit here and cry. I'm not going up there and make. And I stayed right there and cried. Guys cleaned up as best as I could. Everybody left. And the next day, I walk into the chaplain's office and I said, "Hey, this happened. I believe. I knew this was going to happen. I've been praying for you. Of course, it's going to happen. Come on, great guy. I mean, absolutely a great chaplain. Wow. And uh, that's that's. It was no." gradual dawning. It was just like, he made me cry. <laughs> no, one else, no one else could make me cry. Devil couldn't make me cry. Uh, the world stuff couldn't make me cry. I didn't cry through the trial. I didn't cry through any of that. But when I told him, you got to show me something, he did. And I have mm. never said that to him again, because I, I don't like to cry. But it was one of those just remarkable events for me. And I, and I don't think that everybody has to go through that. I don't think, you know, I, the one thing for me is that, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples, not just one. Mm -hmm. So while I think that there's only one way to God, that's through Jesus Christ. I think there's at least 12 different ways because those were pretty different people and they argued a lot. That's right. So that's I right. think there's a lot of ways to get to God. Mine was through being broken in prison. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's what I said earlier about, uh, I would pray to God, please get me out of this. He did put me in prison and saved me. Showed me how much my wife loved me. I mean, it's, it's, how, it's what happened. So that's, that's all I can really tell you about that.
Yeah, well, and as you're now saved, you're getting to do a lot of different teaching and things like that in prison. And so you've shared a little bit about how you matured and some things that, you know, took place while and throughout prison, but the time comes for you to get out. And that brings on a whole new set of challenges once you get used to being in the prison setting. And so what was that first year like? You get out of jail, you get to hug your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I'd never had a cell phone. Yeah. I had never been on the internet. Um, I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a born again believer, yes. But I'm a 1980s guy coming out into, mm-hmm. into you know, 2007. And uh, I hadn't had all the cultural things. You know, I didn't know all this stuff. The music, the, 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 what the church was like. I know what the church was like in prison, you know, right. where, you know, the, our joke was, and it was the, the corpus indictus. We just got the indicted body. You had to be indicted to be invited to our church, you know, that type of thing. And, and, you know, we saw each other 24 seven and we ate together and we would put each other in check once in a while. Somebody was acting up or doing something, you know, but if somebody said, you know, that brother's going to stab you in the back, they meant it literally, you know, as opposed to figuratively. <laughs> so it's a whole different environment. Uh, but I was used to something different. And so when I came out, um, I made a lot of mistakes in, in thinking what church was going to be like and in working in a, in a, in a church. Um, I, I, I was, I had a lot of rough edges and, Frankly, I think I still do, but I mean, I had some rough edges that I had this expectation that, you know, you're going to be accepted. People are going to love you. And, and, and to a degree, that's true. But okay, once you're loved and accepted, what are they going to do with you? Here's right. a guy with a, a doctorate in theology and, and three master's degrees that's been in prison for 15 years. He comes out and they want to check you on theology. Well, I know theology now because I've read Calvin, I've read Luther. I've read all these, I've read all of them, digested them, had time to read those things. I've read the other books. Um, so I'm familiar with all kinds of theology and none of it makes any difference to me except the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had boiled it down to, mm-hmm. I'm good going anywhere as long as 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11, these are the things you must believe Paul said in order to be saved. I'm good with that. You think you're predestined, you believe in free. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Do whatever. I have no problems with that. Now, some people say that's too universalist and, and I get that. That's fine. But people get saved through different stuff. You know, faith healers, all, people are still getting saved, even though we question motivations and all that, because there's a lot of ways to Jesus Christ. Mm. But there was no denomination in prison. All right. Oh yeah. Every church has a denomination, even the non-denominational. Yes. And I, as long as somebody doesn't say we're going to do a reading from the book of Revelations, I'm okay because it's Revelation. Right? <laughs> Just anything else but that. That's, that's a deal breaker for me. You say Revelations, that's, that's a deal breaker. Other than that, I'm cool. Well, and, and what and, I hear you almost saying is so often today, I mean, you're almost like upside down or the reverse of what people experience now. They know a lot of times how to be that quote unquote cultural Christian that they know so little about theology and about the word of God, which hopefully we're all on a process, but there's nothing that's harder than seeing somebody who says they've been a believer for like 15 years, but they're still like working through the elementary truths of God's word, right? 
Whereas you had all this theology worked out, but still wasn't quite sure how to put that into practice and culture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. And, and I, I cut those people all kinds of slack, even as a teacher, because yeah. you got to live your life. You got to make a living. You got people you're responsible for this, that. I get it. That's where, you know, brother Lawrence is enormously helpful in explaining how you can, he said, I'd be cutting carrots and talking about God. You know, I didn't have to go to Vespers at four o'clock. I told the, 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 why, why would I have to go there? I'm talking to him all the time. No, just go do Vespers. Okay. So off he would go because he was Catholic. But the point being how you can be in touch with God all the time, rather than uh, these are the end times you can see where, I, okay, maybe, but so what, you know, we're, we're, we're safe. What's the deal? But they can't see it. And imagine this, Amber, also. You're sitting in a Bible study, and the guy next to you did 15 years in prison, knows a lot of theology, knows how to communicate. What am I going to say? You know, what, what, can I ask this guy a question? And if they do ask the question to the guy who did 15 years in prison and he knows the answer and is remaining silent because he's kind of wanting to know the people before he says anything, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in that position at that point where it's like, I don't know. I have never had the experience of dealing with that, you know, yeah. you know, and, and so it was, it was, it was unique. It's, and I do not pine for the, the, the church in prison or anything like that. I'm just explaining to folks who may not understand that there are people who don't fit in because they're not sure how to do it because they don't have the experience. Mm. And then there's a people with the experience that generally are running the things. And if their theology goes wonky one side or the other, do we bring it up or do we just let it go? Because if it doesn't affect the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, I mean, I got into an argument with a guy in prison that the Sabbath is on Saturday. He says, no, no, the Sabbath is on Sunday. And we almost came to blows over that. I mean, don't get me started on that that kind of stuff. A fist fight over that, you know, and I'm thinking, oh man. And, and so it's, it's, I get out I'm kind of like, yeah. And so honestly, um, it's okay to have people like my wife and I in church, but what are you going to do with them? Yeah. I mean, honestly, what, how do we benefit? Well, you know, it's a, well, you know, everybody has a ministry. Yeah. Well, my ministry is, is kind of a one-on-one type of thing with my students. Mm-hmm. Um, I do some counseling for, for you know, a few pastors that I, I, they, I, they can just vent on me because you know, I'm a counselor that they can vent. Uh, that's, you know, but it's more one-on-one than standing in front of, you know, 10,000 people and saying, God is great. And here's what happened by my book. You know, it's just, I, I just, that's not me. Right. That's not, that's not who God made me. And so I can walk around with my dogs in the backyard. I can scoop up their poop talking to God, realizing that, you know, this, this is a relationship, you know? Mm. And, well, and that's what I, I want to know. I mean, how do you feel like, and I hate to have you speak for her. Um, I really do. I'm going to have to sit down with Cynthia too, but just, you know, how did, as she watched you and then you came out and you began to teach and do these things, how did that really change her too and her faith journey? Because you said, you know, save that a little bit. I want, I want to come back around to that theology that she holds. Praise God, she was raised Catholic. Uh, and the reason I say that is because she comes from eight brothers and sisters. Um, she has a, a twin brother. Um, and, and they always say, are they identical? No, brother. <laughs> uh, I get that question too when I'm teaching in psychology about twins. Well, if, it's a, if there's different sex, can they be identical? No. No. Okay. We, no. <laughs> Why? Chromosomes. We'll explain that later. But her theology was... I don't was, know. I question <laughs> you. are <laughs> probably going to take that out too. But the, no, I the, probably won't. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. Good choice. But the, the, the thing is, her faithfulness was taught 
from a Roman Catholic background of being faithful. Family's family. This is a big Italian family. And, and she was taught faithfulness. So both of us messed up one time around in our first marriages. We, we both acknowledged that, realized that. Um, wasn't deliberate, but it happens. You know, it, 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 people get divorced for different reasons. But the point is, when, when she married me, she said, that's it. It's for life, regardless. And she stuck with that. That was her mindset. And it's still her mindset to this day. You know, I've never brought up divorce. I never think of doing that. But it's what, she's very faithful. I mean, she goes to work every day at this hospital. We had the COVID-19 going on. Yep. She's exposed, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, 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 she's faithful, consistent. She thinks linearly where I think in patterns. I see patterns. I'm, that's why I can't balance a checkbook, but I can do linear and post-linear statistics. You follow what I'm saying? I can do I, statistics, but I can't totally. balance a checkbook because math is voodoo to me. I don't understand. So two different mindsets, but her yeah. faithfulness was instilled early on and her relationship with God was such that it was on a linear path. Then suddenly it's broadened as we see that is just one path. There are others in the Protestants and, and we can look at the, these things and, and experience God differently. You know, and when I, I told her the story of the, the shepherd and the sheep and breaking his leg and that sort of thing, um, she actually burst into tears. <sighs> and I've had people say, oh, that's not true. That's, I don't care what's true. The point of the matter is this is what happened to me. He busted my leg. And carried me around for 15 Thank years, you. two months, and 28 days to save me. Exactly. Look, her, her faith is beyond mine. I mean, we've had financial issues. You know, I couldn't get a job when I got out. and I'm all, I mean, they don't just accept you into teaching or, or doing stuff. So I'm working construction. Uh, I'm doing all these other things, you know, and trying to, 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 to do this. I've got a probation officer that's on me wanting to make sure I'm not, you know, out there, uh, the, the new mafia king or something like that. I mean, he's just on me. And, and after two years, he says, yeah, you're good. Go. And they took me off paper three years early and I was able to vote and you know, I can vote now. You know, and it was like, Oh, such a gift. I was like, okay, this is great. But the, the deal is through all of this, God has had this plan and has moved it forward to where when uh, the last, our youngest son graduated from college, became a police officer. Uh, we, Cynthia, and I never really liked California. Okay. It was one of those, we just, it wasn't our lifestyle. So she, she got her master's degree and she began looking around and we're, we're trying to pick places, you know, where do you want us to go? God, you know, what do you want us to do? And he didn't say anything. And, and then finally it came up one day that um, Corpus Christi came up and uh, Padre Island. And now Corpus Christi means what? Body of Christ mm. in Latin. Yeah. Padre Island means what? Father's Island. I was like, wait a minute. I don't know. I should know yeah, that. I know. I know it because we lived here and we went through it. But I mean, it was like, would you like, would you like it spelled out a little more for you where I want you to go? And they hired her instantly. I mean, so here we are. You know, I, I teach online. Uh, sometimes I'll go into the classroom. Sometimes, you know, just see how it goes. But uh, teach online, I'm teaching biology of all things right now because at a Christian school, because yeah. they want it from a Christian perspective, you know, so and then, so that's, that's what I do. And I'm open to do other things, you know, as, as God opens the door, but, uh, that's, that's how our life has been moved forward to make mm -hmm. things happen. And we had some rough patches at the beginning is I'm trying to learn family again. Yeah. 
I'm gonna tell you one story. This is this is this kind of gives you an idea. Um, I get home first night home is a little before Thanksgiving, right? And so for Thanksgiving, everybody comes over to the house for Thanksgiving, right? And um, at around ten o'clock, I'm ready for bed. I'm tired, so I go to bed because in prison you don't say good night to everybody, right? Before you go to bed. I already know you're. <laughs> so. I'm, you know, I go to bed. I've only been home a couple of days. Next morning, Cynthia says, are, are you mad? No. Nope. I'm home. What, are you nuts? I'm happy. This is great. I love it there. She said, well, you just, you, you went to bed last night. Well, I was tired. You know, it was a big day and all that. And she goes, we didn't say goodnight to anyone. I said, say goodnight? What are you talking about? And I'm, I'm serious. That's exactly what I said. I'm, it's little things. You don't think about that. <laughs> so I have to go out and I'm just thinking, Oh, man. so I go out and, and, and say, hey, good morning, good morning. And everybody's kind of looking at me like, you know, what's, what's the matter with the old man? Did he, did he snap or something like that? <laughs> I said, okay, let me tell everybody something. We don't say good night in prison. All right, we just go to bed. All right, you don't, night, night, none of that kind of stuff. You just go to, so I said, I have learned my lesson. I apologize. Uh, we'll, we'll go with that. So that was my indoctrination into that. Yeah. And if you want to hear, can I give you one more story? Sure. I love it. I'm, I'm trying to get to know my youngest son, Jesse, who's a teenager when I get home, right? And you know how teenagers are. They know everything. And so we're talking, but we're bonding over football, right? He likes the Kansas City Chiefs. I like the Denver Broncos. You know, we're talking back and forth, doing all this stuff, going to the grocery store. And Cynthia's smiling because we're having a good banter and all this kind of stuff. And so we, we, we get out of the car and walking through the parking lot. And this lady makes a beeline to Cynthia to ask her if she's registered to vote. And you know, beeline, right? Are you registered up? So he goes, yes, thank you. Walks by. Steps in front of me and I walk around her and still talking to Jesse. And she runs back around to get in front of me and, hey, are you registered to vote? I just kind of look at her and I, I walk around her again <laughs> and Jesse's following. Lady, third time, gets in my face. And now I've been out of prison that long, right? But I'm home. Yeah. I look her in the eye. And I said, and, well, I'm not going to tell you the exact words, but I explained to her, I just got out of prison. I'm on supervised release. I'm not allowed to vote, but I used other words. My prison words is what Cynthia calls them. I use my prison words. <laughs> and my son, that's probably what helped us begin our bonding process was me talking to this lady like this, right? Because he likes having a tough old man. Right? And she her eyes get huge and she leaves, right? And Cynthia pulls her hood up and walks into the grocery store while oh you know, Jesse goodness. and I continue walking along. And um, she, I said, what's the matter? What happened? You okay? You know, I, what I bought was one of my wife. So she says, uh, you've just announced to everyone within hearing range, because I talk loudly on that, that there's a convicted felon that now that's walking around and they don't know what you've been convicted of. So they might think all kinds of things about you. And so that was another cultural uh, thing that I had to learn is be nice to people that you don't know. Yeah. You don't have to be the tough guy. Be nice. And yes. so that was, that was even after being saved and doing a high seminary, all this kind of stuff. And I just reverted to the, you know, because in the 80s, you didn't do that to somebody. You, just, you know, you, just, you kept away. <laughs> right. Especially somebody looks right like me. Now, face. Well, I'm a big guy too, you know, and, and I was kind of like, Ugh. but I, so these things I had to learn moving along. And when pastors, when they, the last, you know, what was, what's the biggest thing that you've noticed has changed in culture, you know, and all that. I said, the coffee's a lot better. 
That was my answer. When they're expecting a religious, excuse me, a religious answer, I'm telling you, coffee's way better than it was in the 80s. Amen. <laughs> it's way so those are two kind of ideas of, of, of how to get back in. And, and I've had to learn about that. Well, and the good thing about that voter story, though, is that lady somewhere, she is still telling that same story, Mike, all the time about the time the convicted felon dude, like, got up in my face. Yeah, I'd like to think it may have caused her to commit her life to Christ, perhaps. You never know. You just never know. That's right. You don't ever know. Could have at least been the stepping stone, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think on that now, and I laugh, but I was really just being, you know, who I was as a Christian. Well, it's like if you move to a new culture. I mean, if you left America and moved to a whole new culture, it's you have to learn different things in order to appropriate yourself. I mean, that's just part of it, no matter where you're at. And so a prison culture, it is a whole culture in and of itself. And so that could be a whole different podcast. But as we (laughs) begin to close up here a little bit, you and Cynthia host a podcast, correct? Well, we, we, we have, yes. And it's, it's called a savage perspective. Um, and we're, we're trying to get back into it, but life happened. A hurricane happened. Yes. Um, also we've discovered as you age, certain parts need to be fixed or replaced. And so <laughs> we've gone through a couple of those, uh, with Cynthia and, uh, now this COVID thing. So, I mean, it's, and honestly with my podcast, our podcast, I should say, um, we only put people on that we're interested in. We don't just, it's, and as we're not trying to make money from it or do anything like that. So I'm genuinely interested in the people that I know. No one else may care, but you know, and Cynthia lets me book the show and I never tell her ahead of time anything about the person. And oh yeah, she didn't like it the first time, but then I explained to her, I said, that's because you'll be like the listener asking the questions a listener would ask. Mm. And I'll sound like the smart one for a change. <laughs> So it, it works out pretty well, but we'll, we're starting up again next month, God willing, unless more parts need to be replaced on one of us. But other than that, I think it's going to be good. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story. And I love that. Um, I mean, it really is just a testament to the grace of God. He'll use any story. Yeah, I will. I mean, when I was writing the memoir, it was, I, I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm crying in spots and other spots I'm laughing, thinking what an idiot I was and, and that sort of thing. And, um, I, that was an eye opening. I think that was cathartic for me as well because I, everybody had said, you need to write a memoir, right, right, right. And I said, yeah, help you process through it. Nobody cares about that. What are you talking about? And and I'm asking God and God said, yeah, I want you to write the memoir. And I said, well, I'm busy, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm busy. I got things going on. I'm working. I got stuff around the house. I said, you're going to have to give me some time. Two weeks later, hurricane Harvey hit (laughs) and I have to spend the next four months helping, you know, rebuild the house. Cause but I have time to write the memoir. (laughs) So now whenever he suggests writing anything, yeah, I'm right on it. When he sends hurricanes, I said, look, I'll do whatever you want. (laughs) But it was hilarious how that worked out. It wasn't hilarious at the time, but it was, you know, you'd see it. Well, and share the name of the memoir. If anyone would love to go and read it, purchase it. Um, It's called prisoner's perspective, the redemption of a criminal mastermind. Mm. And let me just explain. That's an ironic title. Back in the 80s, anybody who was doing anything that had people working for him was classified as a criminal mastermind. The, the, the guys on the street that was slinging dope, if he had two people working, he was a criminal mastermind of you know, that corner. But that's what the federal government called right. everyone at that time. You know? So that, it's an ironic title. I'm not claiming to be a criminal mastermind. Just let, well, no, other that. people called you that, right? <laughs> well, the federal government did. We know they don't lie, right? Exactly. <laughs> 
I, I don't know if your audience, if you could have seen the look on her face when I said that, oh. she's like, how much can I say? Don't say it as me. I no, do. listen, my audience knows that I can be pretty sarcastic myself at times. So you're in good company, but Mike, I am going to close out with just saying thank you for being here today. I am very, very grateful. I enjoyed it every minute of it. Thank you very much for having me here. Well, friends, if you're struggling with whether God is at work in the world, I hope after listening to today's episode that you have no doubt that he is still living and active and working in the hearts of people all around the world. If you want to check out Mike's book or refer to the resources that he mentioned today, don't forget you can visit graceenoughpodcast.com backslash show notes for all of the links and for quotes from today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.